0: Hebrews 11 is where I'm going to invite you to uh, look this morning, Hebrews 11, and we're going to, Lord willing, race to the end. This is the home stretch of Hebrews 11, verses 32 through 40. And uh, really, Hebrews 11 leads right into Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Um, some of you don't think I can finish Hebrews 11 this morning, but um, we'll see what happens. I hear the chuckles. I appreciate that. That's chuckles of affection, I can tell. All right, so I'm going to read. uh, Let me begin by reading verse 32 and following. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again after again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Let's stop there. Again, this is the home stretch and this is a good opportunity for me to again remind All of us, that the book of Hebrews, though it was circulated as a letter, I strongly believe it was preached, that this is a sermon. It's a weighty sermon, and it's thick. But if you look at verse 32 at the beginning, it says, And what more shall I say? And then he goes into a machine gun fire of recalling and ruminating on the heroes of the Old Testament that are just coming to mind, popping into his thinking, not even laid out in chronological order here. Like Hebrews thus far has been now, he's just sort of highlighting ones that are coming to mind and we'll see how they're threaded in and through the Old Testament. This is him hitting the home stretch. I say him because it's the when he says, "What more shall I say?" The I there is masculine and pronoun form, and he he's ramping up with a soundbite segue to hit the ground running and kind of finish up right to his point that begins in chapter twelve. This Hebrew mind is is roaming not completely by random, but he is saying. Different names in pairs according to priority. And so he'll name one person and then name someone to follow. And typically the one that comes first is a bit stronger of a character in our minds and perhaps his than the next. What you have here is apex highs and and deep lows. You have poverty that's mentioned here, persecution, suffering, and death. It's a sweeping unit that should be taken as a unit and I think preached that way because that's the way it was preached. It's the way it was written and laid out and we need to feel its full impact with this rapid succession of these heroes of the faith. And so what is the impact? What is the target point that's being made here? It's really found in verses 39 and 40. Now look at these verses. It says, and all these though commended through their faith did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. That last phrase in verse 40, apart from us, they shall not be made perfect is provocative. What in the world does that mean? We're going to explain it a little bit later on, but the punch of this, the target is to see that these heroes of the faith that are from the Old Testament a long time ago apply to us today. Their faith is the same as our faith. Now, they didn't know as much as we know in the gospel, but their belief, their exercise of faith in a substance in other words in the conviction of the revelation that was given to them that was real to them that's how real it needs to be to us. These are heroes of the faith they're examples to us and they're meant to cheer us on with encouragement. You know, I I think that we all need encouragement. If you're like me, you might sort of stiffen up at times and say, "You know, I don't need anybody. I don't need any encouragement. I'm good. I'm good, right? I'm good." Okay, but in life, we get thrown curveballs, we get thrown all kinds of things. Whatever you're working through right now, you need someone who's been there before, someone who's perhaps older than you or spiritually older than you, who's been there, done that, to tell you to keep going, to don't reject the faith, don't turn away from Christ, but to look to Christ. We need to be cheered on to keep on keeping on. I remember being a new dad um, a long time ago. Now, my birthday was recently. I'm feeling old, but um, a long time ago, you know, and. My youngest uh, then, my firstborn, was playing peewee soccer, and I remember being on the sidelines and trying to figure it out and fit in with the other dads and the other parents, and you're kind of there not knowing what to do, and she would run back and forth and be in the little scrum pile of, uh, of kids going around. They don't know how to play soccer, right? It's like a swarm of bees going around, but this dad elbowed me and said, look, when your kid." touches the ball you need to encourage your kid and shout out to her and say hey keep on going go for it fight and you know win and I thought she can't hear my voice you know everybody's screaming and yelling but lo and behold I started to cheer my kid on and she heard it and the effects are really remarkable, marketable I mean you can see it and and it's kind of amazing they can hear your voice and distinguish your voice from the crowd and do more we need that kind of encouragement we need to see that we make a difference in people's lives. you know that as a Christian, you are called to encourage other body life members, other people in church, and that your encouragement can be the difference between somebody keeping on in the faith. And I don't believe we can lose our salvation, but our faith can become so weakened. We can be sidelined. And our encouragement brings people along in the faith and keeps people from Losing hope or just dropping out, being gone. I remember one time I uh, had a good friend I had discipled and then later on he was getting married and then he was newly married and and he started to become depressed. He seemed like he had everything going for him. Everything in life was working out. You know, he had a new job, you know, sort of a a perfect southern, Southern Californian couple. And he gave me a call and he said, I just went to a church down the road. And the pastor there knows you, and he recommended that I pick up counseling with him again. And so I said, okay. So I began to meet with him, and for six months, we went through the book, Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. And it was a good time, and and we worked through material, and we talked about the sovereignty of God together, and how God is with you in suffering, even when life feels like it's falling apart. And he didn't disclose too many things to me, I just was encouraging him. But then about 10 years later, we reunited and we went surfing together in Southern California and went out and got burritos. And at the end of our burrito time, we walked out in the parking lot and he said, you know, Jeff, I just want you to know back when, when you met with me with that book, Trust in God, you saved me. And I went and I sort of looked at him, you know, not understanding what he meant because the Lord is the one who saves us. He said, no, no, you saved me. Now, I'm not exactly sure what he meant But it shows how powerful discouragement is where people can just give up on life and how more powerful encouragement can be to surmount that discouragement. The words that we say matter and our life should be filled with encouraging one another. That's the book of Hebrews talks about that. And we've talked about that day after day, encouraging each other. Well, these verses, verses 39 and 40 talk about how the heroes of the faith are meant to be your cheerleading encouragers. You say, how in the world can that be made real and applicable to my life? How does it work out? We're gonna break down verses 39 and 40 in an outline form and I'm gonna break them down in principles here. These are teaching principles that will answer the question of how Old Testament believers, pre-Christ, pre-cross and pre-resurrection are meant to encourage us post-Christ, post-cross and post-resurrection, right? He died, he was buried, he rose again. We know more than they knew but those believers, those men and women are meant to cheer us on in the race that we're running. They're on the sidelines, just like I was at Pee Wee Soccer saying, come on, keep going, keep doing it. How does that work? Well, point one, Old Testament believers were not inferior to New Testament believers. Their faith was not inferior to New Testament faith. Their faith is the same faith that we exercise today. Now, we have a clearer object of our faith in Christ but they were exercising faith. And so we need to learn how they exercise faith. And we need to exercise this same faith as we run the race. It's tempting to disregard old Testament believers as irrelevant, as almost mythological characters, right? Those who were different than we were, they walked through the red sea. I mean, they saw miraculous events that seem almost like comic book stories, but instead Look at what verse 39 says. It says, and all these, though commended through their faith, stop there. That word commended, martyria, it's the word witness. Those Old Testament, Old Covenant, Pre-Cross Saints are to be our witnesses, our examples of how it's done now in the New Testament church. They're commended, they bear witness of something that we need. They're not to be put in an inferior category, something we can't relate to. They persevered. And the way to understand the Old Testament saint is that he or she persevered even though he or she had less revelation. They had less. They may have seen extraordinary miracles at times, but those were few and far between. And they had less to hang on to as they kept running their race. They didn't know Jesus personally. They didn't know Jesus was the key to unlock the mystery of the Old Testament. They didn't know that why the Jews were the chosen people because Jesus was to come from them. They didn't understand why the law was supposed to show us sin so we would turn to Christ. They didn't understand Psalm 2, Psalm 22 about the anointed lamb of God who was to be pierced through for our transgressions. They didn't tie those things together. They couldn't. They were looking for a Messiah, but they didn't know the Messiah in the way that we do. They didn't know what the prophets were looking towards. I remember I mentioned recently this friend of mine that I I play a sport with and he's, he's a Jew, but he's not a believer. He's not a Messianic Jew. He doesn't believe in Christ. He's really questioning his belief system that he was raised in, that he celebrates, that he observes. Because he doesn't have the substance of faith. It's not been made real to him by the Holy Spirit through the revelation of Christ. And so he's a stumbling Jew. He's under the stupor that's mentioned in the book of Romans. He needs to know Christ. Well, they had less revelation. The believing um, ones of Hebrews 11. But they had the same faith. They knew less, but they persevered. Secondly, they... Here's a principle. They died before Christ came, but death was not their end. Do you realize that these Old Testament saints, I know you do this on paper, you would say, yes, I understand that. But in your heart, do you understand that they are alive and well? They're alive and well. They're in heaven. They're worshiping the Lord Jesus. They understand who he is. They understand the fuller revelation of what we know now. That's who they are now. Where did they go when they died? Well, they went to heaven. But do we believe that? If you were to look back at Luke 16, 19 to 31, you'll remember the story that some people cast as a parable, but really it is a true story that happened, I believe, because the name Lazarus is used there. This is not Lazarus whom Jesus called forth from a tomb, but this is the name. It was a common name in New Testament time, Lazarus. There was a rich man who was poor in faith. There was Lazarus, Lazarus who was poor, He was eating on the ground. He was a a beggar and he was rich in faith. They both died. And then in verse 22, Lazarus uh, went to, it says, Abraham's side. That's a metaphor or word picture for heaven. He went to heaven. Heaven is left in this parable or this story. It's not a parable. Left nondescript with a few hints. It's uh, people were known by name. Heaven is a comfort and hell is a torment. It's a torment. If you look there, actually, I'm going to turn there in my Bible to Luke 16. It's amazing to understand that the picture here is between heaven and hell. And there's a great chasm between the two. It says the poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side and the rich man died also died and was buried and in Hades being in torment. So he's tormented. And in verse 24, he says, for I am in anguish in this flame. So it was literal flame, literal torment, two worlds. And the difference between going to one place or the other comes down to what we're talking about this morning, which is faith. In verse 31, the rich man begs for Lazarus. Somehow he's able to communicate with God. It says to Abraham, but that is really another word picture for God himself. He's communicating, begging for Lazarus to go back to earth and be resurrected so that his brothers will believe. He's saying, look, if my brothers could just see a miraculous experience of someone being raised from death, then they would believe. And then you see in verse 31, he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Well, that's just to show you how real these saints are right now in heaven. They're alive and well. Hebrews 12, 23 speaks of the assembly of the firstborn, those who are enrolled in heaven to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is all before the resurrection. This is, these are those who are spirits in heaven right now. They're distinguishable, they're named, they're interacting. This is who these saints are now. They didn't fail their mission. They played in essence the first half of the game knowing that there was gonna be a second half, okay? That's, where, that's what the Old Testament saints were doing. They're part of God's redemptive story that was the first half. And now we as the church are in the second half. We're at the second part of this marathon race. They had many prayers answered to them. They were um, receiving promises that they didn't receive the ultimate promise of Christ in their lifetime. They were looking to that promise, but they didn't receive Christ because he had not yet been born. Abraham, uh, he was waiting patiently and he obtained the promise. In other words, he entered into the promised land, but that wasn't the ultimate promise of Christ's coming. We're going to run through this list of names and look at them and try to understand who they were in this life and why they model faith for us. And so look at verse 39 quickly. It says, in all these, who are the all these? All these are those who are mentioned in Hebrews 11 and all of the heroes of the faith that are unmentioned or named generically throughout scripture. It's, It's more than just Those who are here, it's all of the saints. They're the ones who are cheering us on. If you look at verse 32 again, he says, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of, you know, and then he goes into the names. He's obviously a preacher, right? Time would fail me to fully explain this. That's what he's doing. But let's begin Again, they're not listed in chronological order. Verses thirty-two through thirty-five. Just if you see this, you have Barak, who that's James uh, Judges four through five, and that precedes Gideon, um, which is Judges six through eight, and then Jephthah Judges eleven through twelve precedes Samson, who's judges thirteen through sixteen. Then Samuel First Samuel one twenty-eight precedes David, First Samuel sixteen and second through Second Samuel twenty-four. Again, Barak, who's lesser lesser known to Gideon, Jephthah, lesser known to Samson, Samuel, lesser known to David. You have sort of this, this sort of prioritization of heroes of the faith. And then you have the prophets, and he speaks of you know the prophets in a way that, you know, he could just go on and on and on, talking about more and more people. What's the underlying point of these names? Well, two things. First of all, Each one of these people needed grace. They each needed grace. That's not explicitly in the text, but throughout Hebrews 11, just to mention these names, it conjures up in our minds, not just their victories, but also their failures. But I want to emphasize to you for a second that through weakness, they persevered and found victory. If you'll look back with me at Judges, look back with me at the book of Judges, Judges chapter four chapter four, look at Barak. Who was he? He's interesting. Barak was not brave enough to go into battle without Deborah. That's in verse eight. Again, he was, he was a man who was a general and he was a leader, but he wasn't willing to go into battle until Deborah promised that she was going to go with him. Verse eight, Barak said to her, if you go if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And Deborah went, she said she would, I will surely go with you, verse nine. And then verse 15, it says, and the Lord routed Sisera and all, of, all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. Gideon, if you'll flip over to Judges chapter six, he was lacking faith because it shows that he asked for signs, He asked for science. Verse 36, Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And surely it was filled with um, with water. And he was able to squeeze a bowl full of water out in verse 38. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. I mean, he knows he's testing the Lord. He says, let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only. And all the ground, let there be dew. And it was, you know, so the next, so, says, and God did so that night and it was dry on the fleece only and all of the ground there was dew. Again, lacking some faith, uh, there's another story in Judges 8, 24 to 27 where Gideon melted down earrings and other people's gold and melted it and created an ephod. But that ultimately sent, um, sent the Israelites into sexual sin and immorality because he was trusting in his flesh Gideon made an ephod, verse 27 of Judges 8, and it put, and put it into the city of Orphra, and all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. I think that's why we don't have the original manuscripts, by the way, in the Bible. We have copies of the manuscripts of the earliest writings, because I think if we had the original manuscripts of the Bible, what would happen? People would worship them. They would worship them and, and bow down before them as relics, judges 13 through 16 speaks of the impulsive sins and you see how we're just skipping around back and forth through judges here but judges 13 if you'll turn there is the story of samson it's amazing do you realize that samson actually was a believer it's unbelievable i I seriously as much sin as he was involved in impulsive acts they're they're infamous the way he carried on Look at chapter 16, Samson went to Gaza and there he saw a prostitute and he went into her and the Gazites were told, Samson has come here. I mean, what, a, what an introduction to his foolishness. And then you turn back and we'll go back to Samson in a minute, but Jephthah, Jephthah in Judges chapter 11, just kind of flipping back and forth. Jephthah, Jephthah a judge that actually ended up offering his daughter in a sacrifice I mean, how can he be a believer? He made a vow to God, basically saying that, that the next, he said, I will, you know, the next thing that passes into my chambers, I will offer as a sacrifice to the Lord it's unbelievable. So that he would be able to defeat the Ammonites. Verse 3, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand and whatever comes out f- from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So he crossed over, he fought against the Ammonites and then Jephthah came to his home. Verse 34, behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child because besides her And he neither had neither son nor daughter. So he ended up tearing his clothes. He said, alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low and you've become the cause of great trouble to me for I have opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. Samuel, it's hard to find blights and blemishes in uh, him. For Samuel 8, one through three says that he had raised some sons though that were not godly that ultimately he put into being judges, he put them into office anyway, and he was old when he did it. First Samuel 8, 1, Samuel became old. He made his sons judges over Israel. He should have known that they weren't qualified. And then it says, verse 3, and yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. We know David, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He murdered Uriah, Second Samuel 11. So these are extreme sins and failures that are mentioned, but they, these are still heroes that put their faith in God. They persevered and their perseverance isn't the same as perfection. In your life, God is not looking for you for, at the perfection of your life. He knows you're going to sin. We're called to the standard of holiness. That's not to excuse sin, but he's not looking for the perfection, but he's looking for the direction of your life in faith to persevere, to keep going, no matter what. I want you to turn back to the story of Samson and Judges. It's an amazing story I was looking at. And it, the, where I want to pick up is Judges chapter 16 again. This is a man imbued with supernatural power from God. And again, at the same time, he was an extreme sinner. He sinned, he committed sexual sin, the beginning of 1 Samuel 16, but then at the same time, verse 3, Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts. These are massive gates, something that no human could ever lift in and of himself. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah, and Delilah was... You know, basically manipulating him to try to tell her his power so that she could he could be killed. So she would say verse six over and over again, please tell me where your great strength lies, and she would say it over and over again. Verse seven, he says, If you bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I'll become weak. And so she did that and and called the Philistines and He wasn't telling the truth. And then verse 10 and Delilah said to Samson, behold, you've mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you may be bound. He says, well, it's new ropes. You need new ropes around me. And then, you know, I'll lose my strength. I'll become weak again. Verse 12, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And again, you know, the men lying in ambush were an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Verse 13 and Delilah said to Samson, you've until now, you've mocked me. You've told me lies. And he said, if you weave the seven locks of my head into a web, fasten it tight with the pen, then I shall become weak like any man. So while he slept, Delilah did that. And um, again, she calls the Philistines. The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And, but he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pen on the loom and the web. And she said to him, how can you say I love you? when your heart is not with me, you've mocked me with the, these three times and you have not told me where your great strength lies. She pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart. So he, he relented. He said, a razor has never come upon my head for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, and my strength will, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak. And be like any other man. Well she knew this time. That that was true. She caused him to sleep. She. Verse 19. She began to torment him. And his strength left him. And she said. The Philistines are upon you. So his hair was cut. He was. He was basically. There for the taking by the Philistines. He awoke from his sleep. And said I will go out. As at other times. And shake myself free. And he did not know that the lord had left him and the philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to gaza and bound him with bronze shackles and he and he ground at the mill in prison but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved now the hair i just want you to see the hair is actually symbolic for the fact that even though he was brought to his lowest moment i mean he's grounding mill in the prison He's been defeated. He's been manipulated. He's fallen prey to this woman, her wiles and her speech. And he's basically given his strength away in immorality. He's rejecting God's power. But the point is, when he was acting in faith, God's power was upon him. And when he was not acting in faith, God's power left him. So, what happened with Samson? It's amazing. Ultimately, there was a gathering to worship Dagon, verse 23, and they were praising their God, and they wanted to mock Samson and bring him out for entertainment, verse 25, their hearts were merry, they're drunk, call Samson that he may entertain us, so he's called out from prison, and they made him stand between two pillars, and Samson at the end, at the end of his life, where he had fallen and been so sinful, at the end of his life, he still believed in the true God. And he told the, the young men who were with him, let me fill the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. House was full of men and women. All the lords and the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were 3000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. And Samson called to the Lord and said, "O Lord, please remember me. Please strengthen me only this once. O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes, his eyes had been gouged out. He grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. He leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. This is a finish of faith. I mean, I hope it gives some hope to some of you where you've stumbled, where you've fallen, where you feel like your life has come to a complete hopeless end. Don't quit. You have to, by faith, continue to persevere all the way to the end, even through extreme failures. It wasn't useless because the Lord was faithful to him. Again, this builds beyond Um, weakness in hebrews chapter 11 if you'll turn back there hebrews chapter 11 verse 33 says through faith who through faith conquered kingdoms all of these enforced justice obtained promises these again are speaking of judges and kings who conquered for god Faith, trust in things that cannot be seen, but there are concrete effects that happen through faith. Barak over Sisera, which was Judges 4 and 5. Gideon's faith over the Midianites with small odds. Remember, there were like 32,000 men, and then God said, that's too many. We need to send 22,000 away, so 10,000 are left. Then the 10,000 go down to the brook, and those who scoop the water up with their hand are or basically set apart 300 of them away from the 10,000 who were drinking like dogs. And so the 300 were there and they were equipped with torches and pots and again defeated the Midianites in a great act of weakness and humility and faith. Jephthah over the Ammonites, Samson over the Philistines, Samuel had victory over the Philistines. I was looking that one up for Samuel 7:10 where the Lord threw the Philistines into confusion. David won battle after battle after battle as a warrior king of Israel. Again, verse 33, justice was served. It was enforced. They obtained promises, they obtained the 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 promises through life. Like we see them in our lifetime, stop the mouths of lions. Who did that? Well, we know the story of Samson where he ripped a lion apart, like a young goat and ate honey out of that lion. You have uh David who, you know, as a shepherd boy won battles against bears and lions. Ultimately, this is probably talking about Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel six nineteen, where he's, there and he trusted the Lord and these are high risk high faith situation verse 30 situations verse 34 quenched at the power of fire God quenched the power of fire when Shadrach Meshach and Abednego were thrown in basically saying look we're not going to bow down God's going to protect us but even if he does not we're not going to bow down we're going into the fiery furnace and it says that not even a hair of their head was singed it came out not even smelling like smoke because the Lord Jesus was in there with them, protecting them. They escaped the edge of the sword. Verse 34. These are massive battles and massive victories. Like we've mentioned, Gideon triumphing and others. Lord put people in desperate situations so they could not trust themselves. And then you have a, um, another picture So, you know, they became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. This is the story of Elijah who was raised, who raised the widow of um, Zarephath's son. First Kings 17, 17 to 23. The beginning of first Kings 17 talks about how Elijah came and declared a three year drought, right? So You have a woman who is dying. You have, she's with her only son and Elijah comes to show mercy to that woman. She says, you know, bake bread, provide, and God will keep providing. And miraculously, he provided enough for the widow and the son and for Elijah. God was providing miraculously and ultimately the son died. And she said, why have you come here to mock me? That that he's dead now, but no, he will goes into the back chamber and actually stretches himself three times across the son's body, and the Lord uses that to raise the son from death. Elisha had a very similar miracle account, Second Kings four eighteen through thirty six, the Shunammite's son after he died. The stories go on, but again, now it becomes a bit more generic in the text. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured. That word torture is the word tu- "tupanizo," which is where we get the word timpani or kettle drum. This is hearkening back to how people in the faith during Old Testament times or the intertestamental period, they were stretched out over a container that would be akin to a drum and they would be beaten to death, but they would not renounce the faith. They were tortured Why were they tortured? Well, it was the idea that they were tortured and they would not recant the faith knowing that ultimately they would be resurrected. They were refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Do you realize our resurrection is better than the son of Zarephath and the Shunammite son? These resurrections or the the resurrection of Lazarus when he was brought back from the tomb these resurrections some theologians call resuscitations truly people are dead and they're truly raised again in this life in the biblical accounts but these resurrections are those where people are still fallen they're still living in a fallen world they can still get sick after they're raised um, in this life and then they still die. But the resurrection that we are promised is a resurrection where there's no more sickness, no more death, no more crying, and no more dying, and no more demons, okay? We are resurrected in a glorified state set for heaven forever and ever. It's a greater resurrection. That's what we cling to during persecution. That's what we need to know about. That's what we're persevering towards is this resurrection. It's a better resurrection, They died and they would die again. But our resurrection is permanent. Our resurrection is a life that never ends. Let's look at verses 36 through 38. This is, we're kind of transitioning from victories to suffering. We're not always called to, in this life, see victories. Sometimes there's suffering. There's mocking and flogging and the chains of imprisonment. These are the heroes of the faith that were pre-Christ and they were mocked. And though there were victories, these are those who had to trust God during extreme suffering. Jeremiah was beaten and put in stocks. Jeremiah 20 verse 2. Zechariah was stoned to death for rebuking people. Second Chronicles twenty four twenty. Tradition says Jeremiah was ultimately stoned to death. And tradition also says that Isaiah, the prophet, was sawn in two. That's what is being referenced here. They were killed by the sword. Verse 37, they were sawn in two. They went about in skins of sheep and goats. This is a picture of the prophets. Remember Elijah, he was someone who went around in skins. Elisha did as well. And Elijah is a forerunner of John the Baptist who also went around in skins It's the clothes of the people of God, poor and persecuted. Verse 37 they were destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Verse 38 of whom the world was not worthy. What does that mean? That means that believers, these believers, stood out in a way that they didn't seem to fit here in this world, they were misfits. The author flips it on its head and says, really, it's not that they didn't fit into the world, but the world didn't fit in with them. That's how we need to perceive ourselves in this world. We don't fit at times. We're not going to entertain certain jokes. We're not going to entertain certain relationships. We're not going to entertain certain events. We're not going to always participate in everything the world says we're to participate in. We're going to stand apart. We're going to be different. We're going to be separate for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the mission and the gospel. We need to understand that this world is passing away. It's set up for judgment. These heroes of the faith were not worthy of this world. There's something better that awaits us. And this is the second principle I want to point out. New Testament believers must finish what Old Testament believers began. They must finish what Old Testament believers Begin. We're trying to understand how do the Old Testament hearers of the faith cheer us on? How do they encourage us? Again, working through these situations, they seem so foreign to us, right? Well, we need to understand that we can dial in to something better that connects the dots here. It says, they did not receive what was promised, but verse 40, since God had provided something better for us something better for us these heroes wandered in deserts mountains dens and caves but we have something better for us we have a a clearer revelation of the gospel we have a complete revelation of the gospel we have the book of acts we have the new testament epistles we have the book of revelation that tells us how all of this is going to end the story of uh jesus ascending the mount transfiguration is one that Again, kind of like the author here. I'm not going to take time to unpack it. But at the same time, I have to talk about it. When Peter, James, and John went up there, they saw Jesus in a a glorious display of resurrection light. It was the picture of glorification. And you have two others with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. You know what they represented? They represented the law, and they represented the prophets. And it was to show that it was all about Jesus they were pre-resurrected, but they were foreshadowing resurrection. And that's what verse 40 is talking about. When it says, since God had provided something better for us, the better is the ability to tie together what Moses was about, what Elijah was about. It was all about Jesus. If you look with me over at 1 Peter one ten through 12, the prophets, it says, Concerning the salvation, the prophets, speaking of the Old Testament prophets, heroes of the faith, they prophesied about the grace that was to be yours and searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. This is what's better for us. The prophets inquired about it. They wanted to understand it but they couldn't fully grasp what we are able to grasp. This is the better. It's the complete understanding of the revelation. It's what the angels from heaven long to look at. Old Testament saints are in heaven and they're currently awaiting something. Let me show you what they're awaiting. It says in verse 40, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, this is fairly confusing on the, on the face. Perfection always in the book of Hebrews speaks of ultimate maturity, eternal perfection. It's where your sins have been cleansed from the inside to the out. This is like when we are glorified one day in Romans 8.30. It says we're going to be glorified. Specifically, it's speaking of our resurrection when Christ returns Now let me put it this way, everyone in heaven right now is pre-resurrected, they're not resurrected yet, they're promised to be ultimately resurrected. I think you can sort of put this under the category of glorification, but it's where you get your body, and in some way you're going to be recognizable in heaven for who you are now. Because if you think of Moses and Elijah transfiguration, they were named and recognized. And I think that sort of foreshadowed the resurrection in heaven. And so one day, 1 Thessalonians four sixteen says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So all of these old covenant saints that have been brought into heaven, that have died, will rise. And those who have died since then uh, will rise and receive a body. Now, how does all this make sense in terms of how they're participating with us in the race? It says that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What do we have to do with an Old Testament saint getting a resurrection body anyway? Well, let me answer it. Nothing. (laughs) Jesus is the one who gives the resurrected body. The point of this is not talking about that. It's talking about the fact that if we're all running a race and we're running the second half of the race, those who were in the first half of the race are going to meet us at the resurrection. And we're going to at the, at the return of Christ and we're going to receive resurrection bodies together at that moment. It means that we're all going to basically finish the race at the same time. What do I mean by that? Hebrews 12, let's just peek ahead and look, look at this race idea. Because verse one says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, and if you skip ahead, let us run. We're running to the finish line and all of those Old Testament saints are waiting for us to finish. What are we supposed to finish? The Great Commission, the gospel. We're supposed to live our life here in this life, encouraging one another, running the race, not quitting, not giving up under any circumstances. And these cloud of witnesses, it's like they're on the, the, the sidelines at the end of the race. I mean, Jesus is at the, is at the finish line, but they're going, keep going, keep running, don't Quit, don't give up. Don't stop believing. We did it all the way to our deaths. So you do it all the way to the end until we are gonna receive our resurrection bodies together. That's why the first shall be last. Everybody's gonna finish this race together and it's called consummation, consummation. It's completing the race. I heard from a... um, A former coach, he said that, you know, you need to rule your own universe. I don't know what your race is that you're running, what you're trying to persevere through, but God will bring it about to the end if you will keep trusting in him. Keep running. Ultimately, we're going to one day be in the marriage supper of the Lamb together, resurrected, together, knowing each other, not just us here on earth, but Those who are our heroes of the faith described in Hebrews 11...